This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening in. This is Sean Vincent. Today, Don West and I are joined, as we often are, by firearms instructor Steve Moses. And we're going to have a conversation about something we've been talking about a lot lately, and that is what I'm calling the defender's dilemma. And that describes the circumstance when an armed defender is faced with a threat from a unarmed attacker. Nearly all of the high-profile cases that we explore where the defender got into some legal hot water is because there is a disproportionate use of force. That is, the defender defended him or herself with a firearm and the perceived attacker was, as it turned out, to be unarmed. We've been talking about defensive display as a less lethal option to actually firing your weapon to resolve one of these defenders dilemma cases of course there's legal ramifications to pulling your firearm even if you don't fire it and we're going to talk to don west a little bit about what those legal ramifications are and whether or not you should always call the cops after a defensive display even if no shots are fired. We'll be joined by Steve Moses, who will talk about an interesting distinction, I think, between de-escalation of a conflict and disengagement. That is not making an effort to resolve it, but just walking away. And that leads us to a conversation, something I'm really interested in uh, over the last few conversations we've had about resolving these conflicts, and that is confidence in your movements, whether it's in a defensive display or even just your posture that would send a message to a would-be attacker that you're somebody that's not to be messed with, that you're you're confident in your abilities to defend yourself. And then uh, finally, one of my favorite new topics is uh, knowing how to take a punch. Uh, Sometimes uh, a punch is not enough force to justify the use of a firearm and if you know how to take a punch without taking a lot of damage that can open up a little bit of time uh, that you might need to make a good choice before going to your firearm so uh, here is my conversation with don west and our friend steve moses thanks again for listening Don, you've told me that one of the most frequent calls that we get from CCW safe members who have a legal concern are about a defensive display. Is that right? Yes, I think statistically that's the largest number of, that's the biggest category of stuff that we get. Sure. Yeah. And And I'm curious. What what they're, well, I was just going to comment that, that um, you know, that they are usually worried about a brandishing type charge, but convinced that that was an appropriate response to the threat that they believe they face. So the, the, the question for the police, the question for the prosecutor ultimately would be simply that. Was there a sufficient threat, articulable threat, to warrant the display of a firearm. Uh, the, the, sometimes the context is road rage. 
And that's pretty much always a recipe for disaster when you start breaking that down. That's usually just people angry and acting irresponsibly. But we've had several cases involved in um, uh, parking lot scenarios. Something happened which, or involved with motorists and pedestrians or bicyclists, things that prompted first an exchange of words and then a more aggressive act by someone toward one of our members. And then they had to evaluate not only uh, how serious the threat was, but what the appropriate response would be. That's almost always uh, against an unarmed attacker, so to speak. You know, our member has a licensed uh, right to carry a concealed handgun and something unfolds where they are confronted by someone who is apparently unarmed but very, very angry and agitated and in the member's mind poses a threat. And as that intensity, as the scenario escalates, the member is in a position of having to decide what their tactical as well as legal options are. Yeah, and it can be something that you would never anticipate to happen. It's not necessarily someone who has decided to commit a robbery or a sexual assault and they've chosen a victim. The kinds of scenarios I'm talking about is, well, I'll give you an example. You're at a convenience store and you decide to pull into a parking space to buy some smokes or a bag of ice. And as you pull into the space, someone that had just filled up their car is walking into the convenience store and crosses right in front of you. So you almost hit the person, you don't, but the person is angry because they thought you were careless and reckless and exposed them to the threat of being hit. So one thing leads to another, there's an exchange of words and pretty soon two people are standing there yelling at each other in a parking lot and trying to decide how far this is going to go and, and probably each trying to decide who is the greater threat and what if any defensive action, physical defensive action has to be taken. And, and we get those. We get a, a good number of, of variations of that. In many instances, there is a defensive display of some sort or at least a clear communication. I wanted to talk to Steve about that how gesturing toward a firearm or putting your hand on a firearm or even drawing the firearm but not pointing it becomes part of the communication of the, the, the notion that they perceive the other person as a threat and they're willing to defend themselves but they don't think they need to use it yet. But back, back to the situation, we get those kinds of calls and sometimes the police are called uh, by a, a third-party bystander that watches this unfold. Sometimes a one or the other of the individuals involved in the uh, sort of standoff calls the police. But in many instances, ultimately, both people realize this was something that didn't need to happen. There's no injuries, so it's kind of a no harm, you know, no foul thing, and they go about their business. But I get those calls from the members wondering what they should do. Uh, should they call the police themselves? What happens if the police knock on the door? And frankly, you know, in this day and age of everything being recorded, uh, there's ver a very real possibility 
that if somebody calls the police, there's going to be some video for someone to look at, and then someone can make the decision from a law enforcement perspective whether it's worth pursuing. How often, how often do we have members go ahead and report the incident? And, and is that probably a good idea? You know, I don't want to sidestep the question by saying it's really a case-by-case analysis for me because uh, if I'm, let me step away from my position as National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and talk about a situation where a potential client would call me seeking legal advice in a jurisdiction sure. where just I'm as licensed a, and as say, a private attorney in say Florida and you just get a phone call from from a a, a private citizen that's right that's right who, who and and the question is should I call the police and then of course those are going to be a there's going to be a discussion that has to be frank honest and very detail oriented to get enough information to kind of make the tough call because we know that if you make the call to the police it's going to draw attention to yourself the police are going to respond in some fashion and you are identifying yourself as someone who has effectively drawn a weapon on somebody now if you are clear in your own mind, and if the facts seem to support that you had a legal justification to do that, then obviously you're better off reporting it, um, assuming the other person will. It's almost that cliche that whoever gets to the phone first is the victim. And, right. Uh, so th- there clearly are scenarios where it's to your legal advantage to be the one who reports the crime being committed against you that you had to defend yourself against. On the other hand, sometimes the facts are a little slippery. The justification for displaying a weapon, not very compelling. And from a tactical or strategy standpoint, again, focus specifically on advising somebody whether they want to get the attention of the police or whether they may want to just simply hope that nothing comes of it. Um, sometimes, frankly, my advice is that you may be better off not calling the police and drawing attention to yourself, especially if you have no, if there's no real reason in your mind that the other person would call the police. Right. That's a slippery, almost subjective thing. I can tell you, though, that if shots are fired, um, if, if it's clear there was... A, a violent act of some sort involved, uh, violent beyond just merely the display of a weapon. You almost always want to get ahead of that. But what's interesting here is, you know, we talk about once you've had this use of force event, then it opens up all this aftermath. Our whole podcast, Don, was born out of the idea about the the legal fight that you'll have after the self-defense scenario. Uh, and how that can turn your life upside down and change everything. But uh, I think, Steve, and I'm going to throw it back to you here in a second, though, that if you're in this argument that probably you could find another way out of, but now it's gotten to the point where you feel threatened and you know you have your weapon on you and it's an option, 
that part of this thought process is, you know, I just think it's a great point, Don, that you have to think about, okay, even if I pull this, is this a situation where I'm going to feel comfortable calling the authorities afterwards and saying that I had this encounter? Well, you know, Sean, that that's an important distinction because uh, right from the beginning, any discussion of self-defense as it's characterized as an affirmative defense, which means that in your mind, factually, and your, your belief legally, you were justified in using some degree of force to protect yourself. So in a sense, you have legally acknowledged, number one, you were the person involved in the incident. That's something that the jury instructions everywhere say the prosecutor has to prove. They have to prove that the person on trial is the person who committed the act. Right. So you've already given that up if you're just looking at it from a, a case analysis standpoint. And you are uh, admitting that you were involved, that you used some degree of force, but claiming that you had the right to do it because you were threatened and you were threatened to the degree that you were legally allowed to respond to it. So there really are no defenses left once you acknowledge that you were involved in this, except that the classic definition of self-defense is that you were facing an imminent threat of force. It may be, have to sort it out later, whether that was an imminent threat of lethal force or not, but you were facing an imminent threat of force and that you believed you had no choice but to respond with some appropriate degree of force. So that focuses everything on you and your use of force. And frankly, the kinds of things we're talking about, displaying a weapon in a public place, pointing a gun at somebody uh, without being able to clearly articulate exactly why you felt threatened enough to warrant the display of a firearm can be um, pretty treacherous territory to navigate sometimes. Steve, we were having a conversation one time about maybe uh, an encounter in a store or something like this convenience store uh, scenario that Don drew for us. And you were talking about how you're not going to want to have to look back at the security footage of some fight that broke out and shake your head about how you behaved. Do you remember that conversation? Yes, so so, what's, so for one, it, it seems like de-escalation is a real important tool that every concealed carrier has when it comes to getting involved in one of these sort of random confrontations where tempers flare up. Absolutely. And uh, sometimes de-escalation doesn't work because the other person is not willing to be de-escalated. Uh, but in many of those instances, disengagement is still available. So I always, you know, if someone's saying, well, how do I make myself as safe as possible when I'm out in public? Well, that's going to be one, to avoid confrontations, whether armed or unarmed. Two, if a confrontation is imminent or there is a person that is encroaching upon you, with the, you know, the, the intent to engage you in a confrontation, uh, if at all possible, you need to disengage. Uh, there will be some instances where disengagement is not an, an option, 
I think I may have told you one time about during a uh, road rage incident when a uh, another motorist followed me into a uh, deli store and confronted me at the uh, soft drink fountain. And uh, that's where our confrontation took place. And there was basically no place for me to go at that particular time than literally through the guy. And uh, so uh, I didn't have that option to disengage. And so avoiding those situations, I think, is critically important. Something that I might have mentioned to you guys earlier is that for uh, listeners that have perhaps in the past uh, have found themselves, you know, on more than one occasion in having arguments or confrontations or, you know, kind of agitated discussions with other persons, uh, now is a good time to say that I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, now that I understand some of the risks that go along with that. So, again, uh, de-escalation, uh, disengagement, uh, that's always going to be my first uh, response to a situation like you described. Yeah, it's interesting. And you, you draw a distinction between de-escalation and, and disengagement. And it makes me think we sort of feel like a social obligation to resolve a verbal confrontation in a way that's satisfactory for everyone. But what I'm hearing you say is, like, what would happen if you just had the ability to just turn around and completely just walk away from, from the person? They might yell at you as you walk away. If they follow you and try to re-engage, now, now you know you're in a different situation and the stakes are higher. But it, we've talked about that, like, in the streaming case, the, the finishing machine, how he had that uh, rear-end incident in the middle of the in, the, in the dark on this remote highway and David Crowfoot, who had turned out to be inebriated, kept approaching him. Streetman backed up, you know, 80 feet, but then decided he wasn't going to back up any further and engage the guy and ended up shooting him. Uh, but uh, I think we talked about how there's something psychological. He could have just kept walking away from it. I've done this to people. I've done it to people. I just, I just have turned, I didn't turn around, I just walked off. And I usually walk at an angle where I could kind of, you know, keep my eye on the person so they couldn't run up behind me and jump me. But I've literally just walked off. And uh, there have been a few times when they've, you know, thrown a few profanities. But in other instances, uh, they've just done nothing. They've just been so surprised by my response and in some ways, I think they perceived that as a win on their part. And I certainly perceived it as a win on my part uh, because uh, nothing negative happened to sure. me. So doing something like that, in my opinion, is, is definitely an option for concealed carry. And Don, do you remember that road rage incident we looked at that had that uh, Marine veteran who was a contractor who encountered that young guy, uh, I think he's down in Davie, Florida? He actually, he'd cut the guy off on accident while he was talking to a friend on the phone and the guy got all hot and came up to the intersection and the the Marine veteran who had actually committed the traffic violation decided he was going to roll down his window in an attempt to apologize, but the other guy wasn't in the mood for that and he approached him, had a gun, the Marine veteran drew his gun, we had a shootout that resulted in both guys dying and our 
you know, our comment there was he had an option to just drive away. And sometimes in a, especially in a, in a road rage incident where it's tough to communicate between cars, uh, even the attempt to apologize or de-escalate isn't as effective as just getting out of there. That That's right, because everything that's done, every action and micro action is being, uh, regardless of your intent, whether it's truly intended to de-escalate, could simply be viewed as a, an escalation or an act of aggression by the other person. And in this particular instance, by rolling the window down, making it easier to communicate, even if that communication was going to be an apology, may very well have been seen as a, a, as a slight escalation. Uh, maybe not. Maybe the other person that approached the vehicle after being cut off w was intending all along to be violent. But you're right. The, the choice there was simply to have driven off. And, and in the scenarios that we've talked about a little bit already today, some of these parking lot <clears throat> situations or uh, street encounters with pedestrians or, or bicyclists seem to have those moments of truth in them as well. Uh, for example, in the hypothetical we talked about pulling into a parking space and almost running into someone who was headed into the store to uh, pay a bill or something uh, for gas, um, that results in this sort of standoff. Uh, some critical decisions are made there. Uh, getting out of the car is one. You don't have to get out of the car. If you decide for some reason or you're already out of the car, then there's this verbal confrontation. Um, even if the person you're arguing with wants to continue to argue and even takes steps toward you, you still have options. You have the voice command options. You have the, uh, as Steve has so eloquently discussed on other podcasts, the notion of a tactical retreat. If you're standing beside your vehicle and this person is approaching you and you know they're agitated, um, you have the option to go on the other side of the vehicle. And I've asked people, why didn't you just go to the other side of the vehicle to create some distance, to put something between you and the person until you figured it out, rather than going for your gun? You knew the person didn't have a weapon. You didn't know for sure how serious the physical threat was, whether it was just going to go to uh, if it was going to go to striking blows from just being an argument, uh, but you had the opportunity to create some time to give you some distance and evaluate it before going to the gun, which then creates the fear of the brandishing or the assault charge or what have you. And I can't tell you how many times I get um, the response, well, I was just standing my ground. You know, what about stand your ground? And... Um, I think that's a legitimate issue in most people's minds when they are in a place where they have the legal right to stand their ground, but it turns out to be a pretty foolish decision when it comes to uh, minimizing their legal risk as also and minimizing the, the, the risk of physical harm. And I'd love to hear Sean or Steve or both of you comment on that because I... I routinely have to tell people, yeah, legally you had the right to stand your ground. But is that the However, hill you want to die on? 
<laughs> Good point. Yeah, well said. How, how valuable is that ground that you're you're protecting? You know, if it's the if it's the access way to the convenience store, uh, that's that's probably a, a terrible sacrifice. And Steve, when you answer that question, like like I'm Don had mentioned this earlier in our conversation, and you touched on it here a little bit. Like, say your soda fountain scenario, right? Where now you're now the disengaging's no longer an option. Uh, how do you how do you approach that? And and I think at this point, especially when you're dealing with someone that you uh, is either unarmed or or you have to presume maybe unarmed. There's no visible firearm, right? People, even if he's a carrier, you don't know this yet. So so whatever you do may be against an unarmed assailant. I've been calling this in the articles the defender's dilemma. All the cases, almost all the cases where we see people, defenders really get in trouble is ultimately they're using a firearm against uh, an otherwise unarmed threat, or at least someone not armed with a, a gun. And now you have to walk yourself through a spectrum of possibilities. And and what are the tools that you have as a, you're a, a firearms instructor, you're a student and teacher of martial arts, you're a proponent for less lethal force. Talk me through how you navigate a confrontation here where disengaging is no longer an option and some force may be required. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'll just go back to that particular incident in which I was involved. Sure. Uh, the, the guy confronted me uh, he started, you know, accusing me of uh, uh, cutting him off, acting inappropriately. Uh, and uh, he was basically probably about three feet from me. And so uh, I basically what I did was I turned around, I faced him, spread my feet out a little bit so they were a little bit uh, wider than my shoulders, dropped my base a little bit, kind of sunk my balance so I was on the balls of my feet, brought my hands up to chest level, and said, oh man, I'm sorry, dude. Uh, he was not happy with that. He continued. He took about a half step forward. And then I did something that, in retrospect, I kind of wish I probably hadn't done, other than the fact that... Uh, I just had nowhere to go behind him. I wasn't particularly terribly concerned uh, about the physical threat he posed to me. Uh, I simply took about a half step up myself. And as soon as I did that, uh, it, it scared him. He backed off. He you know, walked away cursing at me and drove off. And so uh, I didn't have OC on me at the time. Uh, I did have a handgun on my, on my person. Of course, I didn't want to use it. Uh, I also knew that I knew how to uh, effectively uh, block a punch using default cover. I can touch on that later if you'd like. Uh, I knew how to tie him up. Uh, I was pretty sure that I could either take him down, and if I couldn't take him down, uh, I, I, was I was confident that I could grapple with him long enough to get control of his uh, arm closest to my handgun and actually bring my handgun to bear and use it from a retention position. So I had all of those options available to me, uh, none of which I wanted to use. 
and uh, the situation, you know, then just pretty much resolved itself. And so what I urge other concealed carriers to do is first understand that if you cannot disengage, you cannot de-escalate, then you're going to have to be somewhat in a responsive mode. Uh, if you feel like at that exact moment that you need to respond with some use of force uh, and you believe it's absolutely necessary and you have no other options, uh, that would be to go ahead and uh, if you've got the distance and the time, uh, OC. Uh, I, I would always deploy OC from my support hand, never my strong hand. I know some people that argue with that. Uh, basically, I don't like to get my less lethal tools and my lethal tools. Uh, I want to keep those separate in different hands if possible. Uh, and that you know could have been an option. Uh, the same thing is true for many of these concealed carriers, especially the older ones that say, well, there's no way I could take a punch. Uh, I would just, you know, it would just kill me. Well, first of all, that's not necessarily true. Uh, there's been instances where uh, people have, uh, you know, exactly as Don said, uh, they've produced their weapons. They were charged with brandishing because they felt like the other person might uh, punch them. And they were, they, were, they were criminally charged. In some cases, I believe they were indicted and uh, maybe even found guilty. So, you know, having the knowledge and the skills to, uh, okay, I've got my hands up here. I know how to uh, block a punch. If a punch does occur, uh, I've got a good chance that I probably won't get knocked down. I probably won't get knocked out. And then that in and of itself would uh, justify my, you know, going to a, a more serious weapon. So I'm kind of rambling here and no, everything. But, I don't mean to get off in the weeds. But one thing I, that's kind of my initial take. One thing I took there is, is you kind of indicated that in retrospect you regret taking that little half step forward. I think the your, the regret would be that you potentially had escalated the physical conflict when you did that, right? Uh, no, no, it was uh, the optics. I, I was more concerned that maybe a third party would feel like uh, or would perceive that I was willing to engage in uh, mutual combat with this guy when that was actually not the intent. Uh, it was more so to steal space from him. There is uh, a lot of people that practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, and other defensive combatives will say that there's three ranges uh, in which a confrontation can take place, a physical confrontation. One can be at extremely close range, one can be at intermediate range, and one can be at long range. Well, uh, at intermediate range, which is where I was, that's actually where, I, I, in my opinion, I was the most vulnerable. I got you. Uh, because that other person uh, can basically, if I'm not in a position to see him initiate that move, uh, I don't have my hands up, uh, if, he's, if he launches a punch at me, probably he'll get inside my reactionary gap. And if he does, he may very well land a punch on my head and indeed uh, either concuss me or put me in a position where I can't you know, effectively uh, defend myself. So by stepping forward, uh, basically, I negated his ability to do that. I mean, you know, a professional boxer probably with you know, a good short hook could probably do that, but the average person could not. 
but the concern was yeah, I knew that was probably on video. Uh, I knew there might have, were there other people watching. Just the optics uh, that appeared to be uh, aggressive. Whereas I would always encourage a concealed carrier anytime that they're confronted with someone like that, if you have the ability to take an initial step back, it in my opinion, that kind of conveys, okay, I'm trying to get away from this guy. I'm trying to retreat. Uh, I'm not voluntarily engaging in combat with this person. Yeah, but I read part two is that as a trained uh, martial artist, right, and a uh, yes. uh, firearms instructor, everything that you do, all your moments or uh, movements are done with uh, confidence. Uh, my read on that is this guy, as soon as you took a certain posture, knew that you were someone who could handle himself. Did you think he got that communication? Yes. Oh, yeah. He actually uh, stepped back and put his hands up and goes, uh, don't touch me. So, <laughs> that's a good read. So I kind of felt like, well, okay, that's confirmation that uh, uh, he was basically concerned about his own personal safety at that yeah, point. Yeah, you know, and, and so and we look at the McClatchkey footage, that's the laundromat in Mississippi, right? And we see her... She had like a low ready stance with her gun when the aggressor approached her. She went, she pulled it up. I think you can look at that and tell by the confidence of her movement. She she had done probably some training, right? It, it, it. Uh, yes, I could see from the perspective of the uh, the aggressor that uh, they thought I, I I may get shot here. Sure, and we talked about and, uh, and we talked about the Alexander Weiss case where the perceived aggressor seemed not to believe that it was even a real gun by the way he handled it and actually dared him to shoot him. Um, I'm wondering, you know, this is it, not everybody has the physical capability to become a, uh, train in martial arts, but just personally, Steve, if you're someone who's decided you're going to make an investment and get a permit and be a concealed carrier, uh, it seems to me that having a little bit of training in some sort of martial arts is not a bad idea. Uh, it, it very much is. Uh, for so many people, uh, they just say physically, uh, there's no options for me to train. Uh, my, my, my age and my infirmity uh, would make it risky for me. And I'm like, okay, I completely understand that. Uh, my particular school... Uh, we, uh, we have a, a monthly class that's called Contact Distance Defensive Skills. Uh, we'll be starting those back up in uh, probably January. And this is not a pitch for my class, but what we do is we encourage students that are concealed carriers of all ages, and I'm talking about people in their 60s and their 70s, to come train with us. And basically, we show some fundamental things uh, like, okay, how do you default block a, uh, a sucker punch? Uh, this is based upon a system that I initially uh, learned from uh, Craig Douglas. I've also taken classes from uh, Cecil Birch uh, and Jerry Wetzel, a number of great guys. And basically, it is a system where you encircle your head in such a manner, you drop your weight, you lean forward, so that the chances that a punch thrown from any angle are not going to hit you on a vulnerable part of your head and knock you down, knock you out. Uh, 
Again, I would just kind of encourage readers to check out. Let's just start with Craig Douglas' default cover, see what he teaches. Uh, I almost describe it to my students as basically you're just encasing your head in a helmet, you know, uh, made up of flesh and bone. And just being able to do that and know that you can survive uh, someone that comes up there and throws a punch at you that's perhaps younger, uh, more physically powerful, definitely more aggressive than you. I think that what that means is that gives you a little extra space to not draw that handgun uh, prematurely. So uh, I believe that uh, this is something that anybody that wants to learn how to do this, for the most part, with the exception of those that are, you know, elderly or, or just, you know, in, in, in serious physical condition, can learn that. I think that's, that's, I think that's a critical part of that. Uh, and, you know, just that ability to do that uh, in and of itself, I think that's just a huge thing. All right, guys, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. This conversation went on for a little while, and uh, we are about to get into the discussion about whether it's ever appropriate to fire a warning shot. So next time we'll start with that. Until then, be smart. Stay safe. Take care.